Hello and welcome to Movement, a weekly podcast for South Aussie Baptists to listen and imagine together. Each fortnight, Melinda Cousins interviews a leader from within our movement and then asks them to share one of their recent sermons with us the following week. Today, I have the great privilege of sitting down with Dr. Matthew James Gray. Uh, Matt is a lecturer at Table College. Uh, he has a PhD in church history. He is a husband, father of three young kids, and a massive fan of American baseball. Yes, I am. I have learned today in particular a team called the San Diego Padres. Yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of stumbled into that, but um, like Padres is actually a word for a pastor in that context. So I'm named after, like, you know, my team is named after pastors. So it kind of works out. Worked out nicely. But the reason we wanted to get you on our podcast today, Matt, is because you are a Baptist historian, which might blow people's minds that there is such a thing. But you're a member of one of our churches at yep. Edwardstown, uh, and you have you know studied and love to talk about the history of what it means to be Baptist. And we thought we're doing a podcast about our movement as Baptists. Yeah. Let's let's talk about it. So can you start maybe by telling me um, what are the the passions and experiences that have shaped you and brought you in, to where you are today? Essentially, what makes someone want to be? a Baptist historian. Well, what makes them not? Um, but uh, uh, no, so um, I, I really loved um, history when I was a kid. Right. And um, I uh, remember my mum gave me a, a book um, called The Reader's Digest Quest for the Past that had all these cool um, historical stories. And I loved that. But I never thought I'd be able to get paid to do that. Yeah. It's just, it just fun stories. Um, and then um, when I, I, I had that kind of various reasons, classic walking away from Christ and then coming back. When I came back, I had a real conviction. I should really read the book that I've dedicated my life to. (laughs) So I I started reading the Bible. And to be honest, while I really appreciated the narrative, one of the things I valued most about it was the history behind it. Mm -hmm. So I found out lots of really cool stuff from that uh, about the history. And I went, wow, history is really interesting. So there's that. And then um, when I started my uh, MDiv, my Master of Divinity, um, I, I wanted to become a pastor, but then I realized I'd probably not make a good one. Um, and so, um, uh, I was sitting with the principal there and I went, well, now what do I do? And he went, well, actually you're good at the history stuff and you seem to really enjoy it. So why don't we get you to be our church historian? And I went, wow. It was like, I was telling my seven year old me, you can get paid for this. This is unbelievable. How did we, how did we wangle this? You know. So yeah, that's pretty much it. That's amazing. I mean, you said there, and I, I see this in you. I think everyone who listens to you teach on this does. You, you get excited. You think it's really cool. You think it's amazing. Where does that come from? Like, what makes you tick? What makes you think that this is also interesting? Yeah. Um. Uh. I I lose about five kilos a semester right. when I'm lecturing okay. because I'm so animated during class. <laughs> it's really bad. Um. Yeah, um, I think part of it is the whole dimension of you can't make this stuff up. Right. right? So there's that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, really my job is just telling cool stories a lot of the time. So there's that. Um, I think as well as that, there's the negative that often you hear about this of the, you know, those who um, don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. Right. I get that, but I actually don't like that. Because I think that frames our past as inherently negative. Right. It defines people by their mistakes. Mm-hmm. What I'd rather say, I, I, it, it makes me excited about church history, 
is um, there's a line by a guy called Bernard of Chartres where he says, this is from 12th century, he says, we are dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants. And we see further than they, but it's not because of the keenness of our eye, but because we stand upon their lofty height. And so rather for me, I'd much more frame it in terms of not we learning from the mistakes, Mm -hmm. but also the triumphs of those people. Last thing I'll say about that too is that the thing I've realised more and more is that those people were in incredibly flawed. Right. Just like, like us. Exactly. And so, like, the thing is, I look at those people and I go, wow, you were messed up. And yet you managed to do these amazing things. Mm-hmm. And that, from a Christian perspective, is because of God's grace working in them, in flawed individuals like them. And that gives me hope for me. Yeah, it's super encouraging, isn't it? If messed up people could do those amazing things, maybe God can do stuff through a messed up person like me. I I meet that criteria. (laughs) You know, I might not meet all the rest of them, but that one I can tick off. Um, So, yeah. Great. Well, as we sit down and have a chat today, I wondered who do you hope would be listening to us have this conversation about Baptist history? Yeah, um, uh, I think that's a, a really interesting question. My question is. Anyone who has joined our movement and doesn't actually know what Baptist means. Right. Um, it's a bit like people who, it's a bit like fish who find themselves in water and have no idea what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, in the current climate of how churches work and that kind of thing, a lot of time the reason why a person chooses a Baptist church over a church from another perfectly fine denomination mm is because of factors that aren't necessarily tied to Baptist per se. They're tied to worship music or they're tied to good pastor or the people, or the people who are meeting. And, and, yeah. and that's all good. Yeah. But there are things about being Baptist that are, are distinct mm. and, not- and noteworthy. Um, and, like, let's flip that negatively. What if we imagine that it's all terrible, but, mm-hmm. like, and you just found yourself in this horrible group? You had no idea. Flip that the other way, though. What if there's actually great things about being Baptists? Mm-hmm. Great things about our identity. Great things about what we've been, what we've stood for, and what we still should stand for that people just aren't aware of. Mm. It'd be really good for them to know. Oh, this is where I landed. Oh, right. Well, this is. <laughs> kind of handy that's nice you know Mate, so, that's yeah. great. i think that's been my experience i don't teach baptist history anywhere near as much as you do but i've done a little bit of it and what i notice is there's a lot of people who yeah go to a church because they're like i love this local church yeah. i don't even really know what it means that this local church happens to be part of this movement called baptists but then when they hear some of the stories they're like ah oh, that's actually why i love my local church because it's like that or because it, it does things in that way or because it has that value i didn't realize that there's a history or a story that has shaped that yeah, and I, I, so I've been using this analogy with a lot of um, my students this semester when teaching theology, but it applies here too. And that is, it's a bit like we're walking across a bridge, but we don't actually ever look at the engineering of how that bridge is constructed. Yeah. Now, the thing is that on one level, that's fine. You can walk across the bridge all, all you like. But if you become aware of the engineering undergirding it, First of all, that means that if ever anything's off off about the bridge, mm-hmm. you know you know potentially why. Yeah. But as well as that, it gives you a greater sense of assurance that this is a good bridge, mm. you know? And like for us, I think the kind of things that you're talking about where people come in and they go, There's something great about this place. Mm. Well, they're not seeing the undergirding. 
but the undergirding's there. Mm. And so if you get to the point where you can understand that undergirding, mm. you'll be more confident, first of all, that you're in, that that's why this is what it is. Yeah. But equally, when you're sitting there and maybe something isn't right, mm-hmm. you'll be like, why is that right? Why does that bug me so much? Oh, it's it's contrary to these intuitive undergirding yeah. things that I was I wasn't aware of, but that are really important. Yeah, no, that's great. When I asked you who you hope was listening, I thought maybe you'd say, you know, people who think history is boring, people who think they hate history. See, I I, I wouldn't think of that because I just can't understand people who would think that. <laughs> um, uh, I just can't understand the idea that history is boring. I mean, I, on one level, I can. Um, I think there there was a period in the way that we taught history that was much more kind of facts and figures and dates dates and and stuff like that. Um, And as I said before, I I think the way that I frame it is much more around just some really cool stories and um, the the stories of people's tragedies and successes and Mm. glories and failures and how that has shaped people and life and stuff like that. I can't understand how, if you're framing it that way, it could ever be boring. Yeah. So, yeah. Look, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. Obviously, I've been teaching Old Testament, which is a particular type of history. And, yeah. But I think that's the thing that always blows my mind, just going, these are real people in real places in real times, just like we are. Yeah. And it, that's, yeah, they're just as interesting as people today are interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe we'll convert some people out there who think that history is boring. Um, so I want to get into some of the historical stories. So I've been asking people on this podcast what they've been seeing and hearing and learning as they engage across our churches. And so most of them are like, you know, what am I learning from what's happening in the world today? But really, I guess what I'm asking you is, what are you seeing and hearing and learning from, you know, studying what's been happening for the last four or 500 years? Yeah, it's this weird thing. Everyone else is like, well, I'm noticing this about now. I'm like, well, I'm noticing this from 400 years ago. <laughs> um, so this this comes to my PhD. So my PhD um, was actually about the Baptists when they originated in mm-hmm. the kind of 16, um, uh, the area that I was particularly interested in was 1640s to kind of 1690s. Mm-hmm. And that's really a core point of the birth of our our movement and a lot of started in 1609 that was one aspect of it one aspect see this never get into a debate with historians they're like well Well, technically you know they had marmalade for breakfast that day um uh no so like um yeah so the main area of the baptist that i was looking at was this 1640 to 1690 Mm -hmm. group um very formational for the identity of our movement so a few things that i discovered about that it's really weird that um, Baptists, Baptists are, uh, at their heart at the beginning were primitivists. What that meant? Uh, that's a big, big, long word. <laughs> it's not Prim- that long, just a bit obscure. <laughs> yeah. So primitivists are people who want to go back to the the like to the Bible and forget about the past in between. There, let's just right. get back to the the primitive points of the Bible, the right. original, the original way, like the, 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 way the church was run properly in the New Testament. Right. Just ask Galatians. And, so what that meant was that we were fairly anti-historical. Okay. Anti-historical. We wanted to kind of skip the last 1500, 1600 years and get back to like the first century. Mm-hmm. And that, that tendency has historically stayed with us okay. to the point where we don't actually remember much of our history for the last 100 years because we've got this kind of wiring that says we should really forget about what happened 100 years ago because, like, we're back to the Bible. We're back to the Bible. Right. Um, so there's a, 
there's something positive in that, isn't there? There's a desire to be like Jesus and to be faithful followers like the early church. Yeah. But there's something lacking, like you were talking about, standing on the shoulders of giants. Giant. But the arrogance of thinking, we're the first ones who've ever tried to do this whole following Jesus thing. Yeah, it's like Pentecost happened yesterday, every right. time for our movement. And the the weird thing about that, where that, where that falls down, is that you can be saying, oh, this is what we're doing right now and, and this is who we are as a movement, this is great. And um, what's that thing under the corner there? What's that thing? Oh, and you look under the corner in, in the room that you're in of, yeah. of your life and you suddenly realise that for 400 years something really good that could have been really handy right now has just been sitting around in the corner. <laughs> Nobody noticed. No noticed all this time. Um, and so, like, um, a few examples of that. So one is that I'm constantly hearing people who, um, you know, think that, Baptists are anti-women in leadership or something like that. Okay. Like that occasionally pops up. Right. And I find that utterly hilarious because, like tragic and hilarious, because as a movement, we were all about women being in very prominent leadership roles when um, uh, we started as yeah. a movement. So I think it's funny. I think what I'd say maybe slightly different is I think, you know, we have a number of women in leadership in our movement, but people think it's a new thing. Yeah. The thing it's like, oh, we've just we've just realised that women should be in leadership and in ministry. And that's you're a, saying that's actually a, it was hiding under the corner yeah, the whole yeah. time. That's a really good way of putting it. It feels like we're being that avant-garde. You know, <laughs> oh, we're so innovative. We're not being innovative at all. This is something that we so like a few quick quick stories. Um, uh, I tell a story. So. Um, uh, Broadmead Baptist, which was a, a Bristol church, was actually founded by a woman called Dorothy Hazard. When we're talking? Um, 1640. Right, sure, of course. Just 1640. Yeah. Um, uh, it was founded in her house. Um, and her house had this wild card that meant that it wasn't actually um, allowed to be uh, attacked. Because at the time, the, starting a Baptist church would have been... Would be really dangerous. The right. Anglican church was it. Right. And so against you, the law? Yeah, it would have been against the law. Right. Um, and so uh, uh, it was Anglican church or bust. And um, what happened with her was that she was able to start a Baptist church in her house because her house had a kind of wild card that meant that the Anglicans couldn't bash it up. Right. And that was because she was married to the, the Anglican minister and it was the manse. That would have been a fun breakfast table conversation. It would have been a really fascinating breakfast um, conversation. And so there's this woman who starts a Baptist church in the Anglican manse. It's hilarious. Um, so there's that. Um, there's another, um, uh, there's a series of uh, women prophetesses during this period that are Baptists that, right. that preach across the, the, the countryside of England um, who get published. And one of the things I find fascinating about reading those, the, the books of these women prophetesses, with all due respect to the actual women prophetesses and, and what they've got to say, yeah. actually the forewords are really interesting because they're all written by male Baptist pastors. Right. And they're all written saying this, I know it feels weird that there are these women doing this. I know it feels probably wrong to wider, to the wider group out there that, that women are having these prominent roles among us, but we feel that God has placed his spirit upon these women to speak into our nation and like 1640s England is a pretty rough spot to, to actually speak into what's going on for us. And we could not, we could not in good conscience silence them. We had to actually finance the publication for the good of the nation. 
you know. You need to hear what these women have to say. We, we, yeah. Can I ask, why were they called prophetesses and not preachers? Oh, that's a, um, that's a really good question. That actually comes to um, uh, Acts 2. Right, in the Bible, yeah. Yeah, so in Acts 2, um, one of the signs of Pentecost that Peter identifies is that um, that God would pour forth, he, pour forward his speech into men and women, my servant, my manservants and my handmaids. Mm. And your sons and your daughters. Your yeah. sons and your daughters. Right. And they shall prophesy. Right. And so the way that they were able, because it was, it was a time where women weren't actually being given legitimate legitimization to actually speak in society, in, in society as a whole, the way that they, they managed to say, no, it's okay this time, mm. is because they said, this isn't just them speaking. Mm. This is God choosing them to speak. And so this regularly comes out in the, the literature. They would say, if God has said that this is his mouthpiece, who are we to silence that mouthpiece? So the, the actual giving them the title of prophetess gave them an agency and a power and an authority that wider society couldn't give them. And it got us into a hell of a lot of trouble. Okay. So, like, there's a um, a book by a guy called uh, Thomas Edwards, I think his name was, um, and he wrote a book called Gangrena, which was basically why Baptists stink. Okay. Right. Like, guess who's the Gangrena of England? Baptists. Right. Okay. And when, and one of his chief arguments was because they give voice to women. He said, when we had Catholics running the country, we had children as bishops. Now with the Baptists, we have women being bishops. We have women leaders. Like, what? <laughs> what what's next? What's to? the world coming to? And the response of the Baptists were, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so this um, this understanding of, you know, like God pours out his spirit on who he pours it out and, they, and, you know, so both men and women speak, it's not so much about gender. It's probably part of a wider understanding of what God is doing in the world. Is exactly. That yeah. Yeah. It's um, So uh, Baptists at this point were part of a thing called the Fifth Monarchists. And the Fifth Monarchists. Yeah. Got to explain that. Yeah. Fifth Monarchists, monarchy is another word for kingdom. kingdom. Yeah. And so part of what they thought was that Jesus' kingdom was coming soon. There's more to it than that, but like yeah. briefly. That'll do. Yeah. That'll do. That Jesus' kingdom was coming soon. Mm. If if Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> and so they looked at the scriptures and they said, what does the kingdom look like? Wow. Okay, what? It's a question we're asking today, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. As if we're the first ones to ask. Yeah. What does, what does the kingdom look like? And then they go back to the scriptures and they look at what the, the kingdom looks like. And one of the things that they said was, well, if you look at Acts 2, that seems to be inaugurating the kingdom. And one of the definitions of the kingdom is that the spirit will be poured out on men and women and that kind of thing. Yeah. So it was part of a larger sense that God was going to bring his kingdom into the world. Mm-hmm. And that um, part of that was... Women having more voice. And young and old and rich and poor, and were they also egalitarian in those other ways? In some ways, yeah. Um, the The bigger issue of the time was egalitarianism in terms of um, voice to different religious groups. Okay. I'm so um, uh, the term that was used in their time for that was um, toleration okay. of religious minorities and things like that. 
um, Baptists coined a new phrase, liberty of conscience. Right. And so part of what the Baptists were really strong advocates for was a sense of equality in terms of having the, the equal right to express, uh, to believe what you wanted to believe, mm-hmm. to be able to authentically express that belief and to congregate with other people who shared that belief and wanted to express it. And so Baptists became very strong advocates for that. Um, And and part of the the underlying word toleration Mm -hmm. for that. Toleration is about tolerating something that you don't like. No one ever tolerates chocolate ice cream because <laughs> they, you don't tolerate that because tolerate you tolerate like like something icky in your mouth. You put up with it because, you know, like Muscle when, sprouts, you know, yeah, when my kid, when my kids need cough medicine and I say to them just to suck it up and get through it, they have to tolerate that mm-hmm. to soothe their throat or whatever. Um, similarly, the Baptist said we want to give free expression to, you know, a variety of voices, including our own. Don't kill us. Um, <laughs> Don't kill us. But then the other side of that was that people said, oh, right, well, what if those voices are really, like, horrible, mm-hmm. like yours, because we don't like you because you're, like, giving women voice and we think that's disgusting. And what they said was, no, we think that it's important for everyone to have free expression, even if we don't necessarily agree with their point of view. So this would be what we might call today like religious freedom? Or yeah, exactly. Thing? So liberty of conscience is similar to, is basically a similar thing to religious freedom. Now, one of the things I came out of that saying was that in their context, it was called religious freedom because the only options you had was religion. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was, it was Presbyterians versus Baptists versus Anglican. I would now frame that more in terms of ideological freedom. Right. That in our context, that that does still apply to Christian or theological ideologies, mm-hmm. so like Baptists, the Orthodox or whatever, but it also applies to people that are from, like, are atheistic or that that's not part of, you know, it's mm-hmm. not framed in religious terms, but that we give freedom of expression to those kind of groups and freedom for them to congregate with people who share those positions. Mm-hmm. So this kind of leads to this whole idea, I guess, that um, we're not going to force anyone to believe, you know, what we believe because we want, I mean, it doesn't mean we, we don't want them to believe what we want to believe. We want to share with them what we believe, but we're not going to force them because the, we're going to give them the, we're going to tolerate. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you mentioned when the Baptists really started <laughs> and that started with a guy called Thomas Hellas. Well, started with another guy, but particularly a guy called Thomas Hellas. And Thomas Hellas wrote a thing where he said, the king's a mortal man, and he basically he, he shouldn't dictate mm-hmm. what people believe mm-hmm. and how they worship. That, he can dictate whether they you know, ride their, char- their, their carriage on the right side of the road or whatever. Right. Yeah. He can dictate whether they pay their taxes. He can dictate all that kind of stuff, but not their beliefs. Right. And his, the undergirding argument, for that was that it's not you can't actually make someone believe something right all you can do is make them say that they believe something yeah and they they said that's entirely counterproductive Mm -hmm. because if people are just towing the party line and telling you what they know you want to hear that doesn't actually help anyone um 
uh, as Christians and Baptists were very, you know, strong about like salvation through faith in Christ alone and all that kind of thing. They said it's counterproductive for people to be telling us, yes, yes, oh, I believe in Jesus and everything. Because then if they tell you that and they don't believe that, then you're going to go, great, tick box, move on, do evangelism to someone else. Because life hasn't actually been changed. And their life hasn't actually been changed. And therefore, they, they're not saved. Mm-hmm. So actually, it would be much better if that person felt free mm-hmm. to express what they believe. And if they're there saying, I'm not buying it, mm-hmm. then that actually gives you a, the, the chance at that point to have an open and honest conversation with them. And maybe then you can convince them. Mm-hmm. If they're telling you what they know you want to hear, you don't get the opportunity to help, keep on having those constructive conversations. I can can hear in this, you know, some of the resonances of how this speaks into today, but I want to get there in a minute. Sure, no worries. Any other, anything else you've really been, you know, learning from looking at our history or, you know, things that, cool stories you want to tell us? Oh. Um, so many. Yeah, there's lots. Um, um, I think if we can go a bit dark for two seconds. The other thing about the Baptists during that period was that um, uh, at times the persecution got really rough. Right. It got really rough for us. And um, uh, the darker side of the Baptists during that period that I, I kind of dealt with was sometimes they actually found themselves in violent insurrections because um, the, the, the government had not given them freedom of expression and had actually quite viciously attacked them and 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 persecuted them, suppressed them. Mm-hmm. And they got to the point where that led to a lot of instability and violence and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I think this comes to a, a point that we have to realise as well. I'm not condoning that, but I think we have to take seriously that if we if we oppress people's voice too much, it's going to pop at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't condone that. I'm not predicting it or anything like that. I'm just saying that's a good lesson for us to learn from our history is that we need to, we need to maintain a sense of freedom mm-hmm. for people to, to be able to express their belief without suppression mm-hmm. because otherwise people just get to a point where they get so frustrated by that it's not good, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we've learned that the hard way as a movement. I'm wondering there's a couple of stories, might not be from that particular period, but who are a couple of people from the Baptist church throughout history that you think are worth us knowing about? What's a great story or two? Um, okay, so um, uh, I mentioned Dorothy Hazard. She's pretty cool. Um, uh, uh, Anna Trapnell is a prophetess from that period. Right. And um, she's great. She's great. She went preaching through Cornwall and then was arrested by the authorities because she shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff as a, wo- as a woman. Right. And um, uh, the authorities turned to her and said, go home to your husband. And she said, I have no husband to impede me, so I will continue to preach the gospel, which I thought was kind of spunky. Um, uh, another um, uh, person from a bit later would be um, uh, William Carey. Um, so William right. Carey was one of the founders of the modern mission movement, mm-hmm. and he was a Baptist. Um, and the uh, thing I always think when I think of William Carey is just his sheer tenacity. Right. Um, so he, he went to India at a time when no one else was thinking of doing global mission, certainly within Protestantism, mm-hmm. and everyone thought he was crazy. Everyone yeah. thought he was wrong to do it. And he spent six years with no success um, and, uh, and a lot of tragedy along the way. And yet, he's stuck at it. Mm-hmm. He's just stuck at it. Um, and in many ways, 
many ways, Kerry was brilliant, mm-hmm. fantastic translator. Um, but in a lot of ways, he was a very ordinary guy. Yeah. Was it a shoemaker? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, the, and a bad one. <laughs> really bad yeah, one. Shoemaker. So, like, the guy yeah. who financed his, um, his going through seminary yeah. was his boss at a shoemaker store. <laughs> uh, his proper know, boss. He, he said, I'll say, I'll make more money. I'll, I'll lose less money by paying for you to go to seminary than I will you ruining my leather, right? So there's this ordinary bloke yeah. who everyone just dismisses as, you know, really on this fanciful thing to go to flipping India to convert people. And, you know, but he just plods along. Yeah. He just plods along. Uh, turns out he's really good at languages. And lo and behold, you know, converts people. Um, and uh, one of the other things is that he's known for, because he was so good at languages, he was able to translate the Bible into many different languages right. in, in India. But as well as that, he started to get a thing that he wanted to record a lot of the Indians' indigenous documents, including some religious ones, like right. from Hindu and stuff, yeah. and actually translate those into English. Right. And as well as that, to retain those. And so within India, apart from the religious significance of him, he's actually revered amongst some indigenous, you know, groups of Indians for maintaining their language and preserving their culture. So, you know, I think that's really exciting. Um, Yeah, uh, yeah, so they're probably a few highlights. Yeah. Yeah, I love this. I, we could talk about so many different things, but the the kind of theme that I've heard when I've heard you talk about this is that ordinary people, but then that drive for like to a mission and the gospel, and you know, people who have met Jesus and want other people to meet Jesus. Yeah, um, we probably can't move on without at least mentioning Spurgeon. Yes, we probably. I I was trying to be restrained. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, so let um, go. Tell let us go. all about him. So Spurgeon's an amazing man. Um, uh, one of the things I'll, I'll briefly say about Spurgeon. Um, Two things. So Spurgeon um, was a passionate preacher from the 19th century and um, just incredibly successful mission mm-hmm. ministry in, in his church. It just kept on getting bigger and bigger, became a mega church and that kind of thing. Um, one of the first podcasters. So really? You, I, I mean, what we're doing right now, yeah. we stand in on the shoulders of giants because he podcasted. Now, you're going to say to me, yeah. well, they didn't have recording back then. <laughs> no, but what they would do is they would take his sermons and they would um, copy them out in shorthand right. um, as he was preaching them. He never had notes. He just, he just talked. He's just rolling with it because that, that's how he is. Um, amazing preaching. And then they would, they would take those and then they'd turn them into printable text right. and they would send them out across the country and eventually the world. Yeah. Um, and so it was effectively podcasting. It was him doing the thing and then it yeah. being distributed out to people yeah. what he'd said. Every week, tune into Every, Spurgeon's next sermon. Exactly. And um, uh, there's like thousands of these, and they've all now been digitised and you can actually get them online. It's really amazing. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing, I don't know if I've told you this before, but um, Spurgeon actually suffered from depression his entire life. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, he had a holiday spot in France mm-hmm. and... Um, Every now and then, like, so you, you you find these stories of Spurgeon and you think, this is a high-capacity guy. Mm-hmm. Like, he is just churning out stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet, throughout that whole time, 
it's quite explicitly part of the narrative of the thing of him going into deep bouts of depression and they would say to him, you need to go in on holiday, hop over the channel and go to your spot in France and just get, get yourself yeah, back get together. Well, well. And so there's this guy who is on one level brilliant mm. and high capacity and then yet on another level brutally broken by weariness and depression. Mm. And, um, you know, I mean, this speaks to the thing that we've talked about a bit now, which is the, the sense that, you know, I'm so encouraged by in, in church history that there are so many people who are so ordinary mm. and so broken and so unspectacular. Mm. And God uses even them. And, and God just doesn't use them. God uses them to do amazing things with lasting repercussions for good. And if that's true for him, then that gives me hope in the midst of my own inadequacy and brokenness and all the rest of that kind of stuff. I think it gives us all hope. Yeah. yeah. So we've touched on it a little bit, but I want to ask you, what are you seeing specifically in so what you've been learning throughout history? What what is speaking into our time, our generation, our moment? Yeah. From all that. Well, clearly, like I'm gonna say our Baptist history is really important for us as a movement, but I actually think it has a lot of positive things to say to the culture that we're right. we're surrounded in mm-hmm. now. So one of those I think is that there there is still this ongoing heart for um, equality and egalitarianism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's important to realise a few things about that. Sometimes you get the impression that 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 it was atheists or, or when, say, the Enlightenment hit in, like, the 1700s that, um, you know, people were moving away from Christianity gradually. That's an interesting sub-story. Mm-hmm. But, like, um, that what was happening is that was the time where we stripped away the religious things that kept people unequal and then equality came as we got rid of Christianity. Whereas um, the historians that I research and non-Christian historians actually um, say that that's not the case. In fact, when I read them, Mm. you can almost hear an irritation (laughs) in their voice. Yeah. When they do that, and these are non-Christians, like there's a guy called Benjamin Kaplan who wrote a great book about toleration, and he he talks about this, and he says it's not that we shrugged off Christianity and then discovered equal rights. Mm. It's actually that the 1700s, funnily enough, can be you know just after the 1600s, and in the 1600s, lo and lo and behold, they're discovering things like the women's rights stuff that I've I've Mm. mentioned. They're discovering that we want to give equal rights to people from different religious backgrounds. Mm. And then once they've worked that out, then they go, well, hang on. If we're giving equal rights to people of different religious backgrounds, maybe maybe we should give it to blacks too. Or maybe we should give it to these people. Oh, well, if we're giving it to them, and it's actually it's the, the foundational link in the chain Mm -hmm. to all of the rest of the stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, that's important for several reasons. First of all, it stops us having a kind of Christian guilt that that, that believes that, Mm -hmm. that that kind of caricature that we had to throw off Christianity to get this, that we were the problem. Mm -hmm. No, we were actually the the foundations to that solution. Mm -hmm. But it also means 
that maybe there were reasons that we worked out for why equality is important and that kind of thing, that we worked out at the beginning, foundational principles, Mm. that if you lose those foundational principles, slowly but surely people start asking, yeah, but why do you do this? Why do you give the equality to people for that? Why don't you just do this to them? It's easier to repress them. Mm. Why Why do you do that? And if we don't have those foundational principles, when they ask that question, we're kind of like, well, I don't know, because it's, it's nice and stuff, because <laughs> yeah. we should. So if we lose yeah. the history, equality ends up being for its own sake, rather than, I would say, probably as a biblical scholar, you know, like, it's, well, it's because we believe all people are created in, in the image of God. God. There's, yeah. this, there's this truth that comes, you know, from outside of us that is that foundation. But you're right, if we lose that, we just think we're doing it because it's a nice idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and I think I, I, they would have been quite adamant on that. The mm. Biblicists, so they, they, you know, they're big on that um, that image of God stuff. But I think as well as that, that sense of freedom of expression yep. doesn't just apply to different religions or even ideologies. Mm. It comes from a, a, large, a larger principle of um, one of the things about Baptists when they began is that the mainstream church at the time didn't actually believe things that strongly. Anglicanism didn't really believe things that strongly. What things? Or all things? Like most things. Okay. Like they, they were not relativists. Um, the, the term that they used was latitudinarians, which is really <laughs> long. Word. But it means we'll just give a lot of latitude to right. beliefs. Yeah. You know what? It's kind of, Who knows? Yeah. What the hell? No. Um, now, the thing about that is that um, that on one level sounds really tolerating. Mm-hmm. You believe you what you believe, whatever. But the underlying impulse of that is you believe whatever you want to believe as long as it's not inconvenient to me. Mm. As long as you don't believe it too strongly, as long as you just don't start living it out, as long as it doesn't start making yeah. a difference. Yeah, as right. long as it's not a bother. Yeah. Um, and by bother, I mean making me feel uncomfortable. Right. Right, and that kind of thing. And the thing is that sometimes there are beliefs that do make people feel uncomfortable, mm. and sometimes it's good to have a little bit of discomfort because it makes you check whether what you actually believe is right. Mm. And so, like, part of the thing about the Baptists was that they said, no, we actually think there is a real truth out there. Mm. It's not that this relativist, you know, um, uh, a Latinitudinarian thing of, you know, oh, well, there's no truth out there, so who cares? It's actually there is a real truth out there. But if there is a real truth out there, we got to figure that out. And we've all got our blind spots here. So the only way that I'm actually going to figure that out is if I'm willing to listen mm-hmm. to other people and see their perspective in the conversation. Now, they were applying that to religious people, but I think we can apply it to a lot of other things now. So, for example, they were suddenly given an in- insight into women's voice. Mm-hmm a perspective that no one else had really listened to because they wouldn't listen to women before that. We might be in a similar situation now where there might be minorities. We might talk in terms of um, the Indigenous community here in Australia. Um, And I think as Baptists, we're we're really growing Mm -hmm. in our ability to listen to Indigenous and Aboriginal voices and hear their stories and hear their perspectives, not as a threat, but as a blessing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm blessed by hearing... Baptist, Baptist Aboriginals and Aboriginals more generally and hearing their stories. And Christian ones in particular, they, they bring a real insight into the scriptures that 
that blesses me. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, uh, but equally, um, we live in a time where there's a lot of political polarization, mm-hmm. and you know there's a, a, a tendency to want to either demonize if you're on the left, the right, if you're on the right, the left, mm-hmm. and to demonize the whoever's the other. And to draw a really sharp line between them. Really sharp line. And Mm -hmm. to hear everything that they say in the worst possible lens Mm -hmm. and to take whatever they say um, to its nth degree. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. You you, you feel like people are picking the worst example of the other side and saying, that's what the other side's like. And then that side's doing it back to the other side. And And a bit of, so what you're saying. So, like, right. so you know, so so the kind of thing where what happens is, is someone says something that is reasonable, mm-hmm. but then they go the opposite. Go so if you're saying that, that clearly must mean that 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 deplorable idea. Right. And that that allows me. It's great because if I do that, that allows me to dismiss the opening present uh, right. premise that you made that was perfectly reasonable. Yeah. And all of that is about silence in conversation. So how does how does our so history and values speak into that? How our values speak into that is that you've got two choices in, in, in that, right? In response to that, you try the thing of going, well, you just do you, boo. Like, you, you just believe what you want to believe and go nuts. But that's not going to get us anywhere. That's not going to get us to the truth. Mm-hmm. What, what our movement says is freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. And that, that freedom of expression is to hear other people's perspectives, to try to hear those in the best possible ways, because what they have to say, even if they're wrong, mm. they might challenge something that you hold dearly that is right, and they might just make you go, there, there are a few options there. One option is that you'll come out of it and you'll realise, wow, no, mm. now I'm really right. Now I'm, I'm really, I'm affirmed actually, to, because yeah. I've had to defend what I'm yeah. arguing and now I actually see that it makes more sense. Mm. Or you might go, oh, wow. Oh, that was taking me down a really wrong turn and, and dismiss it. Or even the, the other little one, which is, okay, so I was 90% there, but you just got me thinking, actually, I probably just need to tweak this just a little in light of you made a good argument there. Yeah. You know? So our, our conversations and our, our beliefs and our thinking becomes a bit more nuanced and a bit more like, oh, I've actually listened to a different perspective and it's, yeah, yeah. shaped me. And so, again, we the Baptism movement have always loved freedom of expression because we see debate and hearing other perspectives not as a threat but as a bless, as a potential blessing, and as an opportunity to grow. I think that's what yeah. I I always think that the danger of this freedom of expression idea is, like you say, we think that it just means well, I can hold this view passionately, and you can hold your view passionately, and we'll just agree to disagree. Yeah. But we're saying it's something more than that, isn't it? Because we believe as a movement, our goal is actually to stay in relationship and to stay in community and to seek truth and to seek what Jesus is saying. Yeah. So our agreeing to disagree is still for the purposes of having continued conversations so that we might together seek the truth. Seek the truth. And, like, I, I think, and this comes back to another little, you know, theme that's been rippling through here, and that's the theme of, like, yeah, the people on the opposite side of a conversation, they're flawed. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Get in line. So am I. Like, yeah. the, the whole story of Christianity is a story of, God using flawed people. Mm-hmm. So we live in this fascinating 
like paradox. The paradox of we're seeking truth and we're seeking that with other people who are seeking the truth, Mm -hmm. even as all of us have our misunderstandings about that truth. Mm -hmm. But it's in the process of just being vulnerable and honest and feeling safe to do that that we can do that. Now, as Baptists, as a movement, one of the central things about my PhD was that we applied that, first of all, to government, Mm -hmm. that the government should give freedom of expression like that, but that there should be freedom of expression and liberty of conscience and and those conversations, constructive conversations, happening between different, in their cases, denominations. Mm -hmm. We could apply that to different ideologies. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing is within our congregations themselves. Mm. And so there was a diversity within the congregations and a freedom to actually be able to nut things out, to Mm. wrestle with things, to talk through things a bit. And, um, and, And I think for us as a movement, we're at our healthiest when we can have people from a variety of different political perspectives or that kind of stuff within our churches and we learn to love each other in a way that doesn't, say, you just stay over there and we just don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. But rather a love that says, we can talk through things and I don't demonise you mm-hmm. as this entirely horrible person. you got your flaws, so have I. Mm-hmm. But equally, where we can say, I can also see the good of what you're saying and how you've got the best of intentions and how, you know, we're wrestling with hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's it. it's good for us to wrestle together in that. That's great. It sounds a lot like humility and grace and all those attributes of Jesus that we crazy thought to put into practice. Yeah. Now, I reckon we could keep talking about some of this stuff all day, but I want to just ask you one final question as we wrap up. Uh, it might be a strange question. I'm thinking, like, what's the question that I can give you that you know that you'd really like to answer? What's the burning question or the um, uh, the the big question I would like to give people is why aren't you asking more questions? <laughs> nice. Um, I think this comes back to the point that I've been making, not questions for the sake of deconstructing things to the point where you're like, I'm just, don't be the niggly person who's just constantly uh, looking for an argument or that kind of thing. That's not what I'm talking about. But I think if we believe in this freedom of expression and that people not feeling safe to talk about where they're really at isn't good. Like that's our movement doesn't really want that. What we want is people to feel honest enough to talk about where they're at and to wrestle with ideas openly and honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I meet people a lot of the time who they come into my classes and stuff and I really try to create that safe environment for them. And they, you know, they'll say things like, I've never felt safe to actually ask this question. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in church for years and not mm-hmm. Baptist church necessarily, but all yeah. kinds of churches. Um, I haven't felt safe to ask this. In fact, as I'm asking, I'm just like looking upstairs and just waiting for the lightning to hit me. Um, but I've always been bothered by this. And if we're a place that allows for freedom of expression, even within our churches, then our churches can become safe places for people to robustly wrestle with the things that bugging that are bugging them. And if we're pursuing the truth, again, we don't need to see those questions as a threat, but as a blessing. Because as long as they're handled maturely and constructively, they're an opportunity for us to go, oh, wow, that's a good question. Let's wrestle with that. Let's draw that out. And I think we live in an environment where so many people feel like they can't ask those questions about politics, about identity, about all kinds of stuff. 
And if we become an environment where people go, wow, every like on my Twitter feed, I'm not allowed to ask these questions, mm-hmm. but here I am. Mm. I think missionally that's really exciting. Yeah. And I think as, as well as that, it's a distinctive thing that we can bring that's really a blessing for people. Mm. And look, it resonates for me because it just sounds exactly like what the Psalms do. Yeah. It's the invitation of the Bible, isn't it? That we don't have to, even with God, we're allowed to wrestle, we're allowed to ask questions, we're allowed to not have it all figured out, we're allowed to be flawed because God's not looking to kind of just give us the answer or smite us. God's actually looking to be in relationship with us and yeah, have I, us I'm, come to know him. I'm stepping on your Old Testament toes, but like what what are the Israelites named for? Hmm. The Israelites are named for wrestling with God. And sure, they wrestle sometimes in poor ways, but (laughs) wrestling with God is like being able to honestly wrestle with the things of life and go to God, what what on earth is going on here, man? Mm. Like, I don't understand. And the the scriptures, the Psalms and and, and lots of places, they never, you're never really told off in the Mm. Bible for asking God questions. You're told off in the Bible for either not asking questions or telling God answers. Yes, which means that you know more. (laughs) That's more of a problem. Now, if we're in the position where we're saying to God and to each other, what's with that, man? Then I think we're actually closer to the biblical witness. Um, and if we are still a biblicist movement in that mm. sense of, of loving that the scriptures, which I hope we are, um, you know, they themselves invite us into that with themselves. The scriptures invite us to do that even with the scriptures themselves. Yeah, with one another. And with Jesus. one another. That's great. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. It's been okay. great to chat to you. Um, I know if people want to hear more from you, uh, obviously they can come and take one of your classes at table. Yes, they can. Or um, every now and then you might pop up preaching in some of our churches around the place, and I think we're going to get you back next week for one of your sermons. Yes, that'd be great. Thanks for listening to Movement Today. If you enjoyed this show, then please take a second to give us five stars, Tap subscribe and tell a friend. We are available wherever you get your pods. Movement is a podcast from Baptist Church's SA, hosted by Melinda Cousins and produced by Ruth Grace and Kathy Turner. We'll be back next week with a sermon from today's guest. <laughs>